Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Let's, let's, um, let's go ahead and get started. Thank you. First of all, thank you all for being here for um, the kickoff of our 12th year of the Must See Monday speaker series. A little bit of background. Um, this was a creation of our career services director, Mike Wong. Uh, back in our very first year in this building in 2008. And the idea is uh, every Monday from 7 to 8, you come to our living room, the First Amendment Forum, uh, and to learn a little bit uh, about some aspect of, of journalism and communication from great professionals. And we always take a lot of time to figure out what's going to be the opening, uh, the opening session, because that's so important and it sets the tone for the whole year. Uh, so uh, no surprise, um, we picked what, what we think is the very best um, uh, to kick off the year, and that is a session on women leaders in newsrooms. And we are very fortunate to tonight to have with us uh, two great leaders. Um, uh, and I'm going to introduce them briefly and then turn it over to our moderator. So on my far left is Professor Julia Wallace. Julia holds the Frank Russell Chair in the Business of Journalism here at the Cronkite School. Um, she was the executive editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the first woman to hold that position. Uh, during her 10 years uh, in Atlanta, she led that major metropolitan newspaper to two Pulitzer Prizes. Um, she's also served as managing editor here at the Arizona Republic, um, at the Chicago Sun-Times, and USA Today. Uh, and significantly, which we'll explain in a second, uh, she was the executive editor of The Statesman in, uh, in Oregon, where she worked with um, the, uh, our, our guest in the middle, uh, who many of you know, most of you should know. Kristen Gil Gilger is our senior associate dean here at the Cronkite School and responsible for so many of the programs that our students enjoy today. Uh, uh, dean Gilger holds several roles here at the Cronkite School in, in addition to being senior associate dean. Uh, she is the Reynolds Professor in Business Journalism. She's the executive director of the Donald W. Reynolds National Center for Business Journalism and the executive director of the National Center for Journalism and Disabilities. Um, so as you can tell, a lot of, a lot of different hats. Before Dean Gilger uh, joined us at Cronkite, she was, she was at ASU um, running student media. And before that, also, uh, like Professor Wallace, had a rich history in, in, uh, in journalism, including as the deputy managing editor at the Arizona Republic, um, and also as the managing editor um, of the Statesman in Oregon, uh, also held editing positions at the New Orleans Times-Picayune and other, uh, other newspapers. Uh, uh, Professor Wallace and Dean Gilger have written a remarkable book uh, that I will encourage all of you to read on, uh, on women leaders in, in the news and what lessons uh, that we can draw from a previous generation for our up-and-coming young leaders of today and tomorrow. Our ma moderator tonight is Lauren Gilger. Uh, Lauren is most significantly a 2011 graduate of the Walter Cronkite School and in fact was our uh, outstanding graduate that year. Um, uh, graduating from a master's program. Uh, Lauren uh, has had a, uh, a wonderful career already in journalism, where she is a correspondent and host at KJAZ, uh, the NPR station here in, uh, uh, in Phoenix, where you can hear her regularly in the mornings. And uh, before that, she was an investigative producer and reporter at ABC 15 uh, here in Phoenix, and also um, on the national level at ABC News in Washington. Uh, she has already won significant national journalism awards, uh, including uh, the, uh, the Peabody Award and the Edward R. Murrow Award. Um, 
Also, as you might have noticed, um, uh, Lauren is the daughter of one, one of the daughters, one of the daughters of Dean Gilger. <laughs> so with that, I will turn it over to, uh, to Lauren. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Yes, one of the daughters. Yes. Well, I'm really happy to be here tonight. This is really a cool experience. My earliest memories in newsrooms are of my mom and Julia sort of running things in Oregon. I don't really remember the newsroom in, in New Orleans before that, but <laughs> they were a powerhouses and still are, and that was normal to me growing up, which is a gift. So thank you both for that, and let's dive in. So I think we have to start with a clip from a movie that I hope you all know, and if you don't, then you should go watch it later. A League of Their Own, one of my favorites, one of my mom's favorites, and of course, the inspiration for the title of this book. Hey, Evelyn, can I ask you a question? You got a moment? Mm -hmm. Which team do you play for? Well, I I'm a peach. Well, I was just wondering, because I couldn't figure out why you would throw home when we've got a two-run lead. You let the tying run get on second, and we lost the lead because of you. Now you start using your head. That's not love that's three feet above your ass. <laughs> Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Oh. Are you crying? <laughs> There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. Why don't you leave? <laughs> yes, and there's no crying in newsrooms, as we know. So I have to start with that, because we have to start with the title, because it's a catching title, it's not exactly uncontroversial. Um, I know I threw out some suggestions that were not as good, but what, why, why pick this one? Sorry we didn't pick yours, Lauren. Um, actually, coming up with the title was like one of the hardest things we did. We had, the book was essentially, it was done to the publisher. We had like two days over a weekend and we had to get them a title. And we had been through what? Dozens, dozens of them. And uh, my other daughter, I do have another daughter, the other one and I were at the hairdresser getting our haircut. And we spent the whole like two and a half hours brainstorming with our hairdresser, like what should the title of the book be? So we're driving home, I'm looking over all the suggestions, they're still all bad. And then it just hit me, like there's no crying in newsrooms. So this movie has always been, as Lauren said, one of my very favorite movies. And the, we interviewed almost 100 women for this book, and it, a number of them would bring up this issue of crying or not being able to cry in newsrooms. And so after the fact, I thought, you know, why didn't I think of that sooner? I was relieved we had a title. It was like, okay, good. All right, we're done. <laughs> And it's apropos because this is an experience that I think many, many women, including myself, has, have had in newsrooms. You go to the bathroom. So uh, I want to then jump to today before we go back in time for a minute and talk about where we are now and, and the reason you write this book now. Because this is not all a history book. This is very relevant to what is happening in newsrooms today. Um, so how do women fare right now? So that's really what inspired the book. Um, I think that we have daughters in their 20s, we have students, and we thought, we faced some tough times, but we thought by the time the next generation comes up, it'll be fixed, everything will be great, and that, that the women at Walter Cronkite School of Journalism today won't have the issues that we had. 
And we found out that wasn't true. And we heard from them. And we thought, we need to take these inspiring stories from these women from generations past and sort of help, help the women that are now walking into newsrooms and facing these challenges. So now we will go back in time. I want to know what it felt like at the time. So you both entered journalism in the late 70s, early 80s. And, and this is right out of Watergate. Journalism's a pretty you know, popular profession. I, I imagine that it was exciting. Um, and, and this brings me to another quick video clip I would like to play tonight because they talk about this in the book. And it's a certain perfume ad in, in 1980 that they both said sort of represented the way they felt about entering the workforce at that moment. It's really embarrassing. Perfume for that 24-hour woman. I can work till five o'clock. Come home and read your tickety talk. Tonight I'm gonna cook for the kids. And if it's loving you, one I can kiss you and give you the shivering fit. Ajolie, the eight-hour perfume for your 24-hour woman. <laughs> the 24-hour woman. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, does anyone remember this ad? Are there any? Yeah, I see one. I see. Okay, Katie, Peter. Okay. A few, I definitely hadn't seen that. No. So actually, I had written about it. I mentioned it in the book, and Lauren was um, reading it, thank goodness. And she said, that's weird. I'm, I'm going to look up that ad. And then she called me, and she said, oh, my God. Have you seen this ad? And I went, yeah, you know, what's really embarrassing is at the time, I didn't think it was so bad. <laughs> so, I mean, paint that for us, though. Like, what was this like? What did you, did you feel like you could do everything and enter the workforce and, you know, be a 24-hour woman? So, I don't think, when we entered the workforce, I don't think we understood it as deeply as we should have what had come before us. So, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed. And at the last moment, it was basically about race, but at the last moment, they decided to throw in the word sex. So it made it illegal, not gender, but sex. Uh, but it made it illegal to discriminate in employment um, based on, on sex as, as well as race. And so all of a sudden, things changed. So in 1970, it's six years later, and the law's been passed. Women still aren't allowed to do anything except be secretaries for the most part. People start filing lawsuits. Mm -hmm. um, and the lawsuits are what really changed things. All of a sudden, companies were forced to open their doors to women. They were forced to begin to pay them correctly. And in some cases, people said, you know, I don't want to be forced. I'm going to act and get ahead of this. So we walked into newsrooms just as that was getting underway. It was really the mid-70s. So my first newsroom was 75. And they had just the month before allowed women to wear pants in newsrooms. Until then, you always had to wear skirts. And I was the first woman to smoke in the newsroom, because even though the men smoked in the newsroom, everybody smoked everywhere back then. Sorry, kids. But um, she, she is, doesn't um, smoke now. Is, even though you know, the men smoked, it was considered unladylike for women to smoke. And so the women would all go into the bathroom to smoke. And you know, the men would sit there, and, but nobody told me. So I just did and sort of changed that. But I mean, it was at just such a different time. Um, but you know. I think one thing that's interesting, and I would like to ask you a question, Lauren, if I can, is in some ways it was easier because it was more blatant. I mean, people would just say stuff to you like, you know, you can't have this job because you're a woman, you know. Um, or I'll, I'll, I'll give you that story if you sleep with me. Yeah, I mean, really blatant stuff. 
now I think a lot of those challenges exist, but they're a little more subtler. Would you agree with that? Definitely, although this is something I don't feel like I experienced or really recognized in my career until I had a kid. I have a two-year-old, almost two-year-old son now. And when I just don't, maybe I didn't care, maybe I just didn't think it was real. But then when I, when I went through that experience without maternity leave, without benefits, and realized that you know 12% of women in this country get maternity leave, um, that's people with a full-time job. Um, and and you know the, the, the deck is not even at that point. It's a little bit stacked. You cannot be the 24-hour woman who has it all like that ad. It doesn't work that way. And I don't think I really thought about it before that. And then I remember having this moment where I was like, oh, wow, this has been happening my entire career. I just didn't notice. <laughs> and, I, and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I do think that it took me a long time to even think about it. Because like, uh, like you have interviewed some of these women, younger women in the book, it doesn't feel as blatant, and it feels like to this generation and, and probably to the next one that these issues have been solved. Yeah, a, a lot of the women we talked to, especially the younger women, said that. There's some interesting research around this. So um, a woman who's written a number of books about leadership uh, uh, in, with women, uh, Gail Evans, um, writes about how um, uh, it's very typical for uh, women to enter the workplace and things seem pretty even. You know, it seems like a meritocracy. And at first that's sort of, that's true. You know, pay is pretty equal at the beginning. Um, the jobs that you can get, fairly equal at the beginning. Um, it seems like, you know, you're getting the same sorts of opportunities and assignments. And then she says about 10 or 15 years into a career is when things really start becoming apparent. And that's when, you know, you're sort of feeling like, okay, you know, I don't have maternity leave and I want to have a child or, um, uh, you know, I'm just not getting the assignments or the promotions or I'm being talked over at meetings now that I'm in meetings. And, um, and that those things start accumulating so that, you know, she says people say women drop out of the workforce because they're ready to have children or a family and that's more important to them. But family uh, work is just as important to women as it is to men. It's just that when they start weighing those things, the experiences that they have in the workplace and family, that it just doesn't seem worth it at that point. It, it, because the workplace has not lived up to their expectations. So Boy, this, we're sounding so down. Let, ask, us, <laughs> ask us a positive question. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the positive question. <laughs> but I, want, I do want to go back for a minute, though. So, Julia, you were describing the, 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 the way this felt when you entered the workforce. And it, did, it felt like you were sort of breaking down some of those barriers, whether it's smoking in the newsroom or wearing pants or whatever it is. But did, and you felt like by the time your daughters, hypothetically at that point, got into the workforce, these issues would be fixed. But... Um, at what point did it stall, or what did the progress look like up until a certain point, and then did we get a setback, or is this something that we just stopped paying attention to? Um, I think it's a combination of things. I think that there's so many issues, and you touched on one of them, which is the issue of trying to balance work and home becomes an, it's an issue for men and women, but particularly for women that becomes an issue. I think there's, you know, we've heard a lot about Me Too, the issue of sexual harassment sort of plays out. Um, there's the issue of the swath of leadership, that for a man, 
you can ha there's a wider range of ways you can lead, but for women, if you're too soft, oh, you're just a pushover, if you're too hard, what, what, what is it? What do they call you? Oh, yeah, you know that word. Okay, um, right, it's, you know, that it, it gets really difficult. So I think that there are just all these other challenges, and I think part of the reason we had so much fun writing this book is that the way these women overcame these challenges was, was really pretty great. And I can, I can, tell a, can I tell a story on someone in the room? Yeah, give us a couple there. I'm gonna give you one. Uh, Kate O'Brien is here. So Kate, Kate, was the num Kate was the number two at ABC News at one point. And so when she was a baby producer, um, she- 21. Yeah, she was, she was um, in, in the control room and you know there's all this activity and everything's going on and all of a sudden she feels this guy put his hand on her butt and she's thinking you know I'm a nice girl what do I do can I say the word ass yeah I think so and she yells out as loud as she can so and so take your hand off my ass <laughs> and the whole control room gets like dead silent his hand sort of slowly moves away, and she never had any trouble again. Imagine that. <laughs> so good work, Kate. But I mean, I think it's an example of just sort of like figuring out how you dealt with it. And, and then she went on to, to be, you know, top executive in, in that organization. There's another story in the book about Nina Totenberg, who I love this story. So um, many of you have heard Nina on NPR, right? She's been reporting since about the mid-1970s uh, for NPR. And she tells a story, this was during the Bill Clinton administration, but it's not a Bill Clinton story. Um, she's at a White House dinner, and Bill Clinton is sitting on one side of her, and an unnamed public official um, is sitting on the other side. And she feels his hand on her thigh, and the hand is moving. And Nina's thinking, Hmm, what am I going to do? I don't really want to make a scene at a White House dinner. And so she said she took his hand and she held it for the entire dinner and she ate her dinner with the other hand on the theory that if she was holding his hand, it couldn't move. And so women have different ways of dealing with these situations. <laughs> Yes, women have different ways of dealing with those situations. <laughs> you both have experienced this, though, and I remember these stories that you told me when I was in college, probably, but give us one example from each of you of, of you know, a moment when you really had to face how you would deal with it. I'm going to do a non-sexual harassment story. That's fine. All right, why don't we do that? Um, so um, I was the managing editor of the Chicago Sun-Times, which at that point was the number three job in the newsroom there. And the whole management structure, this is the mid-1990s, the whole management structure was white male. And so they had an operating committee, which was all white guys sitting around a table making decisions for a paper that you know, actually had a very diverse audience um, and was a great paper. Um, and so the publisher decides this is a problem. So he tells my boss, why don't we invite Julia to the meeting so we have some diversity. Um, so I show up at the meeting and they hand out the financials for the month and he's like, oh, she doesn't need one. And I'm like, okay. And so I, I mean, and there are a couple things I could have done, right? I could have sort of said something in that moment. And this is my boss's boss's boss, you know. So, you know, because I'm like three layers down in the newsroom. Um, 
and I didn't. Um, but I basically went to my boss as soon as we walked out of that meeting and said, I'm not going again. You know, find, find somebody else was sort of my way of doing it. Um, now, I don't, you know, I think now, I don't know if I would have, I probably would have taken it on a little more than I did. I think at the time I was just sort of, sort of angry that, that I was sort of being sort of treated, it was so obvious and blatant that I just sort of let it go. And I, I didn't get, you know, I didn't get invited back, which was fine. But that was sort of my example of that. Are you going to tell the sheriff's story? A what? Sheriff's story. Oh, no, I don't want to tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see another one. Um, oh, so um, it, this also goes to not sexual harassment so much as um, sort of the, um, the burden um, that you sometimes place on yourself when you're trying to move ahead uh, in a newsroom that is um, and in a workplace that's predominantly male. And you really feel like you have to prove yourself. So um, I was pregnant with her. And um, and uh, uh, I was a, a bureau chief in the River Parishes Bureau of uh, of St. Tammany um, Parish, or the St. River Parishes Bureau of the Times Picayune, and um, and I was due the next day. But that night before I was due was a parish council meeting um, across the river. So you know I get on the ferry and go across the river, cover the parish council meeting. I'm really big. They're all saying, are you sure you're okay? Should you be here? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not due till tomorrow. So <laughs> this was before this was before um, cell phones and 24-7 news. So I went home that night, and, you know, I didn't have to file the story until the next day, basically, until the paper came out. So I um, went to bed and, of course, went into labor that night. So, uh, and my husband's here. He can attest that this is true. So about at three o'clock in the morning, I, I wake him up like, he says, let's go to the hospital. I said, no, no, I can't. I have, to, I have a story I have to get in. So I waited until about 8 or 8.30 in the morning until Ron Thibodeau shows up to the River Parishes Bureau. And I call and get him on the phone. I say, Ron, I have to dictate a story to you. And so I would start dictating the story. And about every four or five minutes, I'd put the phone down and say, uh, uh, wait a minute, I have to breathe through a contraction put the phone down, breathe through the contraction, pick the phone back up and say, okay, now where were we? He was totally freaked out. Um, <laughs> really? That's shocking. That's terrible. So this is a little crazy, right? I would not recommend yes. that any of you do this, but I think it kind of goes to the point of how much you felt like you had to prove yourself, that you weren't any less tough or inconvenienced um, than any of the guys. And, um, and you know, that's when I left the Times-Picayune about 10 years later, that was still the story they told about me, so. <laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> so I wanna, before we sort of talk about um, some of the younger women in the book, I wanna talk about some of these amazing examples in the book, and this will be the positive part, right? Of women who you, you interviewed and got to, got to tell their stories in a way that it really shows that there are various ways to deal with these issues. Like you can approach leadership and sexism as a systemic problem in various ways and be successful at pushing those boundaries. So each give us your, I guess, your favorite example of that in the book. So one of mine is Wanda Lloyd. Um, Wanda grew up in Savannah, Georgia um, in the 50s and 60s, black woman, so highly segregated world that she grew up in, you know, all black um, schooling, all black neighborhood. Um, they could go downtown, but many stores would not allow them to try on clothes. 
um, the local department store, for example. Her grandmother liked hats, and so the woman from the department store would bring over like a car full of hats so her grandmother could try them on because she couldn't allow her to do that in the store. So, you know, this, you know, really sort of difficult, sort of hard to imagine childhood. So she grows up and gets into journalism um, and ends up at um, the Gannett Company back in the um, 80s when Gannett was very focused on diversity. They really believed that it was critical for the business of journalism. Um, that if, if, you know, unless we reflect our communities, we can't write about them well. And so the CEO at the time, a guy by the name of Al Newharth, who was a very flamboyant, controversial guy, was really pushing women and minorities. And so Wanda walked into USA Today in the 80s and said, I'd like a job, and became one of the deputy managing editors at USA Today. She then went on to have a really illustrious career, eventually becoming the editor of the Montgomery Advertiser, which if you know your civil rights history is, is an important moment in the civil rights era where the bus boycott with Rosa Parks began. And it had been a paper that had not been particularly supportive of civil rights. In fact, someone I talked to described it as that racist rag. Um, and for a black woman like her to be able to become that editor and then you know, cover the community different was really amazing and she you know I talked to her about it because she's not a she's not a get your hand off my ass kind of gal right she's very understated and you know just sort of a quiet change maker you know much like Rosa Parks in some way of just sort of slowly making things happen and really made a difference in that community Mom? I don't, this is like asking me to choose between my children which I think you clearly uh, did here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Is Dana so, here? Um, no. There are a couple, I mean, we interviewed, so, so, like you said, so many amazing women who have these um, just remarkable stories to tell. But um, a couple that stand out real briefly. One, I spent a, a several days at Mother Jones Magazine um, interviewing the two women who shared the editorship at that magazine for 10 years. And when they were, it, it, they, the magazine had gone through a series of male editors who, uh, one of whom was Michael Moore, and who was a disaster as editor of Mother Jones. And they had really had some bad experiences with some ed male editors. And, um, and the, the two women, Monica and Claire, had applied for the position independently before and been turned down, and a guy was selected over them. So uh, with the last time, uh, then the, the, another, the position comes open again. And they decide to join forces. You know, like if they get together, and say, we'll share this position, um, then, you know, two for one, and, uh, and maybe we'll get it. And there was a lot of skepticism about that. Um, the man who was uh, the CEO at the time went home and asked his wife, who was, who was a, uh, she's an administrator at the medical school at Stanford, said, so, you know, what do you think about this, like, crazy idea of two women sharing a job? Can two women really get, like, can this? And she goes, they're women, it'll work. And, uh, and, and then when Mother Jones decided to do it and it was announced, there was just this outcry, you know, cue the cat fights, 
right? This is never going to work. Lots and lots of skepticism about it. And I love this story because um, they turned it around and they were very successful um, sharing that position for 10 years. And they're both still there. One of them now is elevated to the CEO position and the other is um, working as the editor. But they still like are together. They do everything together. All their decisions about the magazine are together. And they really demonstrate, I think, how, how that can work. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the younger women in the book who you interview, about some of these ideas that, that we talked about earlier, this idea that, that it's a little more insidious now, it's harder to nail down, you kind of think you're crazy, and, um, and, and things like negotiating raises are very difficult. <laughs> uh, Julia, tell, tell, yeah, tell, tell them what you do in your gender and media class. So I teach an <laughs> online gender class. It, it's um, Fall B, if anybody's looking for an online class. Um, we have 80 so far. We're always open for more. Um, but one of the, we, we go through and we look at sort of some of the key issues. And one week, we look at pay equity. So for every dollar that men make, when women only make 82 cents. And so we explore that. And there are a million reasons that there's not pay equity. But one of them is women don't are less likely to ask for raises than men. And so we practice. And so you watch some interviews where you see other people do it, and then you do a, you have to record yourself asking for a raise. And I was showing them to Kristen, and it's, I'm going to say it's almost painful because I would say at least a third of them sort of start like, I'm really sorry, they this apologize. is really hard. <laughs> you know, I know this is going to be difficult. It's like, no, you know, just go for it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with asking for a raise. And so trying to sort of break some of that down is, you know, what we work on in the class. So Lauren, do you need this class? I definitely do not. <laughs> but I did definitely, you know, five years ago, in which case I probably, I would have never asked for a raise. Um, I, I, I want to talk about um, some of the, the younger women who are in the media today. Like you talked to someone at the Republic, you talked to Lily Altavina, you talked to the woman who's running, is it Vox, right? Um, some of these people who are, who are really still pushing against these issues today, but in a, in a little bit of a a changed landscape and what, what it is that you learned from them. I, I think Melissa is a yeah, good example. Yeah. yeah, so Melissa um, Bell was at the Washington Post with Ezra Klein, and they had this idea for a new kind of organization. Um, it was sort of more explanatory about the news. They started talking about it, and together, and they then got one other friend to join them, they launched something called Vox.com. Does anybody? Uh, follow Vox. Follow Vox. I mean, you good. Yeah, it's it's a really it's an excellent it's an excellent product. Um, and so, um, if you go back and look at all the clips from around that time, all the stories have Ezra Klein's doing this, Ezra Klein's doing this, and it's all these photos of Ezra Klein. Um, and um, and she was really happy with that. She was like a behind the scenes, get it done person, she's really brilliant, really smart about technology and journalism and how they intersect. Um, and you know, in one photo, it was actually a New York Times story, there's this big photo of Ezra sort of front and center, and you see like her ear in the back of her, you know, <laughs> and, and that's it, you know, and it just sort of mentions her. And she's like happy, because she, Frank, she's sort of an introvert, she is an introvert, doesn't really want the attention, is really happy to have Ezra out there. Hi, I'm Mr. Klein. And, um, and so um, 
then this woman uh, posts a, a, a blog post that basically says, oh, this is just another bro organization with all these you know, guys, white guys running the place. And the women in her organization come to her and say, you've got to speak up because you know, we're not going to be able to hire the right people. We're not going to have the right culture. You've got to speak up. And so she sort of came out and began talking about, no, I'm his co-founder, and here's who I am. And so this has been, you know, we're many years now into the creation of Vox, and she still struggles with it. I mean, literally, as I'm interviewing her, she's like, I know why you want to do this, but this is really hard for me. Um, you know, unlike a lot of the advice we give people, she cried. She cried three times when I interviewed her. She cries in the newsroom on occasion. Um, and she's really sort of trying to, I think, change the sort of way we think about women in leadership. And, and she said, you know, she talked about how it's like, because this is something I created, I can sort of do that and I have the ability to sort of make that happen. And I want to see what that can look like if we have a different model for leadership. Just sort of one side note I'll end with on Melissa, because it's such a great story, is so she's now the publisher of Vox. Ezra has gone back to being like a blogger, and um, you know he has a podcast that's really good, if any of you want to listen to, if you like podcasts. Um, so just so we're clear, Ezra now reports to Melissa. Um, uh, Samantha Felix is another good example. Okay. So Samantha is a, an editor on the uh, digital audience engagement side at the, at the New York Times. And she tells a story about um, how she worked for like eight different news organizations in the first like 10 years of her career. And she would start a job and then something would happen. And she would say, okay, I'm out of here. And then she'd go to another news organization and you know, she'd have a trouble, trouble with she said like a guy who was threatened by her, who you know made her work life unpleasant. She said, okay, I'm out of here. She went to another place where they uh, closely, it became very clear to her very quickly that if she got pregnant, it was gonna be a problem. So she said, I'm out of here. So she kept doing that and moving to a different job. So she gets to the New York Times and the same thing happens. Um, she says there was a, a man who uh, was threatened by her and started being very controlling in, uh, in trying to control her behavior, like wouldn't let her talk to certain people or go to certain meetings. And she said, I, it has to stop. I'm at the New York Times. Like, where else am I going to go? Um, I'm not leaving this time. And so she tells a very, I think, inspirational story about what she did to make sure that she was heard. And eventually, he left. And it was the first time in her career that when she ran into a problem, she wasn't the one to leave. I think it, 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 it holds a great lesson. So we have a few minutes left before we're going to go to audience questions. And I want to talk about all these students out here, right? Like the people who are the next generation of journalists, women and young men. And, and, and two sides to this question. One is, what, what do you want them to know? And the other side is, what do you learn from them every day as you teach them? Let's talk about the guys first. You want to talk about the guys? Sure. Okay. So um, one of the things that we stress every time we talk about this book and we hope it comes across in the book is how much men need to be part of this conversation. And, you know, Julie and I have some regrets about how we handled some things. Um, one of them is, is that we did talk to women, but we didn't talk to guys much about this at all. We just didn't we excluded them from those concerns and that, that conversation about what was happening. 
And I think that was a mistake, because I think if things are going to change, we all need to be part of this, and that um, men are a very important part of it. Um, and, and young men, I see, are very open to this. And the question that we get is, but I'm just not quite sure what to do. So, you know, say if it's a sexual, you know, just, a, you know, a bad behavior. It doesn't even have to be harassment or, or a comment or talking over somebody or something like that. So, you know, if it's a guy, um, what, should they, what should they do about it? I'll let Julia pick it up from there. Oh, so um, I do some case, um, some of you probably have already seen me in 110, if not, you will. But I do some case studies there where um, we walk through some examples. And I have one example that I do where it's, um, you're a young reporter at a local TV station, the anchor, you know, is, takes an interest in you, is very complimentary of your work, really supportive, and you're all excited, this is all great. Um, one night, a group of people go to the bar. At the end of the night, it's just the two of you. He tries to kiss you. You say no. He says, okay, fine. The next day, he apologizes, and you're like, great, okay, taken care of. And then all of a sudden, he starts criticizing you. And what do you do? And how do you handle it? And, you know, I had in, you know, I think the response is obviously, well, in, in one class, I had the, uh, one of the guys immediately raises his hand and says, well, you need to talk to him. And everyone's like, yeah, okay, great, we, yes. But let's say that doesn't work. Then what? And he's like, well, then you need to leave. You need to just get another job. Which is what Samantha did. And, you know, and it's like, well, wait a minute. That, why should she leave? He's the one who had the difficulty. And so, you know, I think part of it is sort of getting in that mindset is how do men become our allies? How do they sort of call out bad behavior when they see it? How do they, you know, in many ways, sometimes men can have conversations that we women can't have that you'll see things you know, that you go, wait, we could, you know, let me sort of cut this off. And so I think that to really make progress on this and change culture, it has to be all of us working together. Some of the young women we talked to said that it would help if the men around them in the newsroom or any workplace, if they just acknowledge that something happened. And it doesn't even have to be public. It's like sometimes it's like you said, you think, am I crazy? Did that just happen? Uh, am you I really making this up? <laughs> um, and just to have that acknowledgement like, you know, I saw that, not cool. Um, how are you feeling? want to talk about it, that that alone can be just a huge um, support, even if you don't like, you know, take on the man. So can I, I want to go back to your question for the women, though, because I do, I have, I want to say one thing, is that, what do I want to say to the young women? I want to say this is the most amazing profession. It's, I mean, I, I, um, I, I have trouble thinking about anything else where you could, number one, make such a difference, and number two, have so much fun. Um, I mean, it really is a fabulous profession. And I think sometimes we sort of get stuck in, oh, there's all these stories. But it's just sort of persevering through it. And it, can, it, is, it, is an amazing, it is an amazing world out there. And the reality is, you know, there's a lot of conversation going on about saving journalism and what journalism needs to sort of have increased credibility. 
The answer is, until we look like the people we serve, we can never do it, because we all have different perspectives. We all come from different backgrounds, and it's only when we have you know, diversity in our organizations that we truly can you know, make do the kind of quality work we need to do. And so I think part of our message is, you know, you just sort of got to fight your way through it, and, and in the end, you will make such a difference. It can it makes you feel really great, which is, I think, where we feel in our careers. No, I'm not sorry for one minute that I that I did any of it. Um, I would add that a lot of all of the issues that we discuss in this book, whether it's work-life balance or sexual harassment or leadership styles or working your way up from the bottom or any of these things, it's journalism is an interesting sort of case study for these issues, just because journalists are interesting and quirky and fun and the stories are good, but it could have been written about any industry. Um, I was uh, spoke to a woman at a conference recently and she just read the book and she said, oh, I'm going to write this about the construction industry, same book. <laughs> so I said, yeah, feel free. So. <laughs> really? So last question, then we'll get to audience questions for you then. Um, the, I just want to have a touch on that one more time. This idea that like you you dedicate this book to me and your daughters and my sister, I'll admit, not just me. I'm glad but you remembered your, daughters, your sister. Right? <laughs> and and so much of this is about, I think, your hopes for these women out here, these young women who are going to enter the field and for me and and all of my comrades. I wonder what how you think we can best finish the work you started. Oh wait, does that mean you want me to answer it? You're thinking? Well, I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm ahead. thinking. Um, okay, so when Julie and I were entering the business, we really thought, keep your head down, work really hard, be better than anybody else, bring other women up behind you, and everything will change, problem solved. And it did help. I mean, there are, there's a lot of progress in newsrooms now. We can see, um, you know, a lot of women in, in, in very uh, filling newsrooms and leading newsrooms, in fact. Um, but it didn't solve all the problems. And, and I think that what we need to make um, our newspapers and our television stations and radio stations and magazines truly reflect the community and do what you were just talking about is that really is going to take more attention to you know culture and policies and procedures and HR and you know maternity leave and who do you go to and, and you know when you have a, a, a sexual harassment incident or something like that I really think we didn't pay much attention to those things and those are the things that still need to change but part of the reason we wrote the book every chapter ends with sort of lessons and so what we tried to do was to still some of the lessons, the things that these women learned, and and list them. For, and some of them are our own, based on our own experiences, and sort of list those lessons for you. So, um, if you take uh, Julia's gender and media class, you're going to be reading that book and some of those lessons. And you know, and we'd be happy to talk to any of you. You don't have to buy the book, right? Um, I, you know, I'm not supposed to say that, but uh, uh, come and talk to us, and we would be happy to sort of talk this through with you. We hope this is a bridge between, you know, women of our generation and women of your generation. Is some of it just about speaking out, about talking about it? Yeah, I also think, yes, it is about speaking out. I also think it's about what Kristen said. I don't think 
we thought enough about the bigger picture. You know, what are, you know, I mean, the maternity, all those policies related to that, that, you know, that's an issue that's got to be dealt with or you're always going to have difficult, you know, women are always going to face challenges. And even the idea of paternity leave is really important because it sort of changes the dynamic where the dad is home more and gets to sort of be, feel more connected from the beginning, not just the mom. So, I mean, there are all these, all these ways that other countries are so far advanced in us that there's huge opportunities. Um, so I, I think it's just sort of, I think we were sort of fighting a ground war and it needs to be a bit more of an air war. If anyone has questions, there's a mic in the middle. Please come up and tell us your name. Sure. Hi. Uh, my name is Jill Ryan. And my question really is, when you guys uh, interviewed all these people, uh, was there an individual story or a pattern that emerged that surprised you? You didn't think uh, you were going to learn that going in that you end up publishing? Yeah, um, one really stands out to me, and it's the issue of confidence. So we would interview, I mean, um, these women who were at the top of their professions, right? I mean, they have done, they have been successful by any measure, and they just doubted themselves a lot. Um, and you would think, oh, you know, what do they have to be um, not confident about? But that theme came up over and over and over again. One woman who was the editor of a, a major newspaper said, you know, I just keep waiting for them to figure out that I'm not as good as they think I am. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there has been some research on this issue, and it's, it's, it tends to be true. Men tend to, you know, if you ask them if they're qualified for a job, they're, yeah, they're qualified, and women are like, oh, I'm not so sure. Maybe there's somebody better for the job than me. But I, I think what women bring to this that is a strength, actually, is that doubt is not a bad thing. I mean, you know, to sort of think more deeply, to listen more closely, I think is a good thing. What, uh, and I think it was, was it Kate, or did, you may have said this, that the, pro, that the danger is if you let the doubt paralyze you, you know, that you have to be able to act. And that was really sort of a revelation to me. That was a surprise. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Mary Louise Long. Um, you kind of touched on this already, but I loved the sense of encouragement that you got from the perfume commercial. And I was wondering what you guys would suggest, like me or any other like emerging female journalist, to walk into the newsroom like wearing. Like, what should we wear and walk in in order to succeed at being that eight-hour, twenty-four-hour working woman today? All right, well. Um, this is a legitimate question. It, it, okay, and we should let Lauren answer it, but before we do that, um, Julia once did not get a promotion to an editor's job because she was told she didn't dress like an editor. Yeah, so don't ask me. No, uh, no, but it was because she, all the editors were male. No, she didn't dress like them. <laughs> so you, you answer that. She, she's a be the best dresser. It's not, it's not about what you wear. I really, I, and I, I kind of hate to say this because I think it's sort of playing the game, but I kind of think you have to play the game. Like, I kind of think you need to dress the part and be professional and present yourself in a way that exudes confidence. In a figurative way, what should we bring to the table, like, in our, in our mannerisms? So that's the balancing act, right? That's where if you come off as too aggressive, it's sort of scary to people. But if you come off as too, you know, I actually, I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a student who, uh, really great student, and was getting interviews and never getting the job. 
and I think you know the story. And so she, I think she'd had like three or four interviews, and she made it to the finals and never got the job. So I'm like, all right, come in, let's go through this. Let's figure out what's going on. And so she was like dressing in like this. She comes in, I said, you know, dress how you do, and let's see. She comes in in this like ruffle dress. I'm like, no, no ruffles. We're not wearing ruffles when you're going, you know. So we sort of got rid, and then she's like, what about flowers? I have a pretty flower, no, no flowers, right? So <laughs> it's like, so we go through all that, and then it's like, it's like, how do you get that sort of confidence, but not too aggressive? And this is sort of that, unfortunately, that needle women have to thread is how do you get to that right point? And you just, I mean, some of us just practicing, man, literally. So we practiced for a long time. We went around, you know, sort of practicing questions and she now has a really great job. So I, <laughs> I think it, you just sort of work your way through it. An example for this is, so I was a producer at ABC 15 when I first got out of grad school. Um, and I was a, a, like a consumer producer, an investigative producer for a couple years. And then one day my news director called me into my office or into his office and said, do you want to go on air? And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> that doesn't happen. And um, I really think that some of it had to do with, and one of my mentors in that newsroom told me this later, some of it had to do with the fact that I had always dressed like I was on air, and I was never on air. And I just, I just felt like it was important to look that way, to look like as good as the people who have to do all the you know, stupid hair and makeup and stuff like that. Not that I teased my hair every day, I really didn't. But um, there was a, I, think an, I think there really is an aspect of dressing the part. And that people can see you in that role. Thank you. Good question. Hi, my name is Grace Sanders, and um, with your story about being in labor and being more—I'm sorry about that. No one do this. This is more—it's ridiculous. About um, your story, then giving birth, um, it made me think about how not just in journalism, but in really all professions, how it can take a significant toll on your health and especially on your mental health just by being a woman in that profession. What advice do you have about recognizing that this is something that's happening to you and avoiding it while still advancing? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think you can't do it alone. I mean, is the answer, right? So um, Julie and I both have incredibly supportive husbands. Uh, people who know my husband call him a saint. I will not tell you why. We, we agree. <laughs> uh, he agrees too, right? <laughs> so, I mean, and he actually stayed home and raised the, my kids, our kids, while I was sort of like off in newsrooms. Um, but a lot of the women in the book told us this. Like uh, Sandy Mims Rowe told us this. Uh, Aminda Marquis at the Miami Herald told us this. She says she has a good Cuban mother. You know, um, that they, it, t it takes a village, that they had support systems around them that made it possible so that they could do this and, and not be crazy and not even always feel guilty. I just did this so I can talk about this. Oh. Um, this is, um, it's, just, it's just hard. It's just really hard. Like you are unlikely to get any kind of leave or, or benefits around this. I had a, a pumping closet that was full of, you know, like t-shirts and mugs and stuff. It was like a storage closet. That's where I would pump. And, um, and this kind of stuff is just the reality. And I, didn't ha I don't have a good answer to that question, except for the fact that I can tell you in the last two years since I had my child, I have done 
three different series on postpartum depression, maternal mortality rates, all of these things that don't get talked about and should be. And I think that as a journalist, that was the way I could address it. So I, I did a lot of stories on it. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I wrote my question on my phone, so I wanted to word it right, but sorry, I'm looking at my phone. Um, so you guys talked a lot about the blatancy of the sexist experiences you've had through your career and how women of our generation feel that things we experience may be less blatant. And I feel like that a big thing I've run into in life in general is sexist humor and jokes. And 